right. Well, good afternoon if you're in D.C. or the East Coast and good morning to everyone else. And les uh, bons temps roulés. Uh, we're going to have a New Orleans-focused themed webinar based on a program that Dr. Laura Lee Hall has been leading with Dr. Keith Ferdinand um, and, and learning more about New Orleans. It is Mardi Gras here. It's Mardi, about to be into Mardi Gras week. So we're going to go ahead and keep it happy and send it over to Dr. Hall. So Dr. Hall. I thank you so much, Brandon. And hello, everyone. As you're entering the room, I'm going to try to get everybody's spirits up. So here we go. This is for you, Dr. Ferdinand. <laughs> and the great Louis Armstrong. A little bit of graphics here. <laughs> And the participants are rolling on in. Let's just give them another 30 seconds of it. Come on, folks, everybody sing. <laughs> now when the saints. Oh, when the saints. Oh. Well, that's enough fun, huh? Um, so I wanted to first start out by saying thank you to, of course, Dr. Ferdinand, the wonderful staff at NMQF, Brandon and Keiko, and to all of you participants who I know are just continuing to learn and to do good work to promote health equity. So thank you, everyone. Um, just kind of to remind you, there's some work to be done in vaccination. Um, this is uh, from this week from the CDC, and you can see that Hispanic Latino populations, Black populations, and um, Native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders, they have the lowest rates of boosters, as well as our Native Americans. Work to be done. I find the statistics for flu vaccination this year in terms of health equity to be um, just terrible. Um, so I, I'm gonna go through this briefly. That, so as of February 12th, 11 percentage points lower in terms of flu vaccination for non-Hispanic black children compared with white children. Look at these numbers for pregnant women. Um, 22.6% lower for non-Hispanic Black pregnant women versus white women. Only 29.6% of Black pregnant women have gotten a flu shot this year. It continues through adults, everybody over 18. We're talking 14, 15% differential in terms of flu vaccination. And it's even among our older persons who are on Medicare huge 15, 20% difference. This is worse than it's ever been. So I just wanted you to, you know, kind of be reminded that we still have lots of work to do. Our um, NMQF and the Center for Sustainable um, Healthcare Quality and Equity that I lead, we are focusing on vaccines and total health because, you know, really that's what's important to people, right? And so I encourage all of you, join us. We have a Faith Health Alliance with uh, pastors from black churches 
hairdressers and stylists, community pharmacists, other champions, email us at this email address and join us. We'd love to help you out in your efforts. And you can email Kay Collins to get a badge that you can put on your um, email and your LinkedIn and your social media. So everyone recognizes you for your leadership. And um, Brandon didn't mention this, but please register for the summit, NMQF's Leadership Summit, April 25 and 26. And you see there's a um, URL. I'll share these slides with you and we'll put that in the um, chat box. Let me just, okay, I had to put this print so small because Dr. Ferdinand is so distinguished and we are so lucky to have him. And you know what? I actually think he's a saint too. One of the best I've known. He is the Gerald Berenson Endowed Chair in Preventive Cardiology, Professor of Medicine at Tulane University School of Medicine. He has his medical degree from Howard in Washington. He's board certified in internal medicine and cardiovascular disease, certified in subspecialty of nuclear cardiology and a specialist in cl clinical hypertension. He knows a few things about diabetes too. He is a professional society and scientific leader. I'm not even gonna read all of the organizations he's led, does lead, etc. He's a clinical trialist with over 250 peer-reviewed publication and he lectures nationally and internationally. He is a health equity and vaccine champion, member of Louisiana's COVID Health Equity Task Force and a number of other activities at the community and the national level. And he's won so many awards that, you know, I didn't even put them all on here. And he is just an amazing person. We're so grateful to you, Dr. Ferdinand. I have one logistics slide. Put your questions in the Q&A box and we will um, now turn it over to Dr. Ferdinand with our gratitude. And uh, then we'll have plenty of time at the end for Q&A. Thanks everyone. Thank you so much, Laura, for that very generous introduction. And I and see really, the slides beautifully, by the way. Very good. And it's actually my honor and my pleasure to speak to you regarding unmasking disparities in heart health and vaccines of youth from New Orleans. The two emblems I have there, one is Tulane University, my academic affiliation, but more importantly, the vital affiliation I have with the Healthy Heart Community Prevention Project. We've partnered with Laura on diabetes education. And for several decades, we've done community outreach and intervention here in New Orleans, my hometown. We're gonna take a view from New Orleans, but it's not gonna just be a happy view. I'm gonna show you the distressing history that especially people of African descent have suffered in New Orleans and throughout the Mississippi River Valley. New Orleans is one of the most important centers of culture in North America. It didn't join the United States in 1803, but founded in 1698, incorporated in 1718. You see this statue at the back of the French Quarter along Decatur Street, the last street by the Mississippi River. And I think the person who designed the statue thought that he or she was actually showing a good thing, but it shows Jean-Baptiste Bienville with not only the priests, but the indigenous population at his feet. 
New Orleans has been here a long time. It's a relatively small city now, but if you look through the history of North America, it's one of the most important areas of civilization. The first opera, the longest standing open market, the French market, the first pharmacy, the second oldest cathedral, St. Louis Cathedral, and a population which has been of African descent, mainly enslaved Africans and free people of color from the Caribbean for centuries. This is a tricentennial desktop anthology that was published, and the guy blowing his horn is my brother, Kevin. New Orleans, we like to say, is the northernmost Caribbean city, the mixture of African, European, and indigenous food, culture, and music makes it a very unique center. But it also was one of the largest, if not the largest slave market in the country. Here's a map showing the slave trade entering through the large port of New Orleans up the Mississippi Valley in the Southeast. Remember this map because we're going to look at the burden of disease across the United States. And you're going to see some of these same areas, areas of disadvantaged populations and high rates of cardiovascular disease and death. The 1619 Project made some very profound observations about this area. The enslaved population, which made up the majority of many of the parishes, which is our name for counties. At one time, it actually was Queen Sugar, more than King County, that made New Orleans the second richest state. It also led the nation, however, in destroying black lives. And in the sugar parishes, the parishes where the sugar cane was harvested, deaths often exceeded births. The Mississippi River Valley, even today, stands at some of the most socially economic disadvantaged populations with high rates of the condition. And I'm especially interested cardiometabolic and cardiovascular diseases, but also certain types of cancer. And when you look at rankings, it's often between Mississippi and Louisiana for who has the worst outcomes related to disease processes and the social determinants of health. Cardiovascular deaths themselves, while plateauing for many decades, have actually increased with high rates in the Mississippi River Valley and southeastern parts of the United States. High rates of hypertension, high rates of heart disease death, and much of it on a population which has been disadvantaged. The Supreme Court doesn't always get it right. This is a famous landmark decision, 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson. I actually know Plessy, they still live in this area. And Mr. Plessy was a light-skinned New Orleans person of color who wanted to sit in the front car. This is a century before Rosa Parks. And he was arrested and taken off because he wouldn't go to the black car. He was an educated man and fought it to the Louisiana Supreme Court and then to our own Supreme Court. And in their quote, wisdom or lack of wisdom, they suggested that Louisiana was right to arrest Mr. Plessy because separate was equal is not discrimination. Indeed, if you visit New Orleans, you're not going to see this in the French Quarter. This is one of the back parts of the town. There's actually a plaque where Plessy 
was able to fight the power unfortunately lost Plessy versus Ferguson, a landmark Supreme Court decision suggesting that the wise at that time men, at that time white men only in the Supreme Court can make very egregious decisions. Younger members of the audience may not know this picture. This is a famous painting from Norman Rockwell. He was an American painter and his paintings were prominent in American culture in the 60s and 70s on the front cover of certain magazines. And this looks like it may be something that Norman Rockwell was using to figuratively show some of the byproducts of discrimination, a young black woman, young girl being escorted to school by US Marshals. But indeed, this was not something a figment of his imagination. This was Ruby Bridges. And she was actually escorted to school, one of the first schools to be integrated in New Orleans. And the reason she needed marshals because her daily walk to school was met by bitter and angry parents. I'm sitting at the Tulane University Medical Center across the plaza in the city hall. And although people of African descent have been a major component of the New Orleans population since its founding, here we see Reverend Avery Alexander, who at that time was one of my patients, being dragged down the city hall steps into a paddy wagon. And what was his crime? He wanted to eat in the city hall cafeteria. Some of the remnants of the history of discrimination in New Orleans have actually been removed. This is at the bottom of St. Charles Avenue, the major avenue where the streetcars run. And it was Mitch Landrieu who removed the Robert E. Lee monument. It had no place in New Orleans. Robert E. Lee actually never even visited New Orleans. But it was placed by those who wanted to remind the people of New Orleans of the history of the Confederacy. Fast forward, Hurricane Katrina was a major disaster. I actually was able to get out with my family, but we lost everything, our home, my cardiovascular center in the Ninth Ward. I'm a child of the Lower Ninth Ward. And I was able to publish, along with an historian, Deanna Penner, stories of overcoming Katrina, African-American voices, and pleased to receive Professional Black Talkers Health Brain Trust Leadership Award for that particular oral history. But it was a terrible time. This is the levee. And you'll note the water pouring into the area. This is the lower ninth ward where I grew up as a child. That big red thing was a barge that burst through the levee. Those areas where you see water were areas where homes once stood. And if you visit the lower ninth ward today, you'll see empty lots, steps with no house. I can even show you collapsed homes. 15 years later, there's not been substantial improvement in this particular area of the wall. At one time, my family lived on Flood Street. That was the actual name. Here's a picture from Hurricane Katrina in 2005. There's a flood on Flood Street in the Ninth Ward. But the same area was flooded in 1965. The same levee broke in approximately the same area. So many of the citizens in New Orleans, especially members of the Black community and those of the Lower Ninth Ward, feel that there's never been an effort to protect us from some of the environmental ravages of hurricanes and floods. Here's a firsthand account 
that was written during Hurricane Betsy. I'll read it word for word. Rescue work by helicopter was slow. That stopped at dark around seven o'clock. People began to panic. I told Keith and Kenneth, Kenneth and Keith and those around me, we may as well take the best of it, but no one knows we are here. Help one come into the morning. The rain fell so hard I had to take off my glasses and hide my head. The water still slowly rising had two more inches before it reached the rooftop. We learned that communication and cooperation are necessary factors for survival in the disaster. This was only part of a letter written by my mother, Inola Copeland Ferdinand, to her sister, Norval Lee, and I only found it years after her death. We had spent days on top of the roof. We had drowning of my paternal grandfather next door, bodies in the water around me. Many of her neighbors, my neighbors, my childhood neighbors abandoned on the rooftops of the lower ninth ward in New Orleans. Post Katrina, we saw some of the same lack of attention. Katrina was August 29th, 2005, Monday morning. By that time, I had escaped first with my family in Jackson, Mississippi, subsequent to Atlanta. And I had the same experience that many of you may remember, waking up, looking at cable news and seeing pictures of people deserted and abandoned and wondering, was this a replay? Was this a tape from yesterday? Not recognizing it wasn't until four days later that help came to rescue people. COVID-19 is another disaster. When you look at life expectancy, Black versus white and Latino populations in the United States, there's some real data. This is not social science. These are national available data of life expectancy itself. White individuals in the light gray, Black individuals in the brown, Hispanic in the blue. And if you look all the way back to the 1960s, this has been well documented, there is a white, Black, mortality gap. Again, not social science, death. With lower life expectancy for Black Americans versus white Americans. It narrowed a little bit around 2015, but because of the disparate effects of COVID-19, the gap widened. And the so-called Hispanic protective effect was lost. Indeed, the USA Today in one of its headlines a year ago said, that while the whole United States has lost life expectancy for Black people, it's been nearly three times worse. I laid in my bed in the pandemic early on trying to figure out what can I call this increased African-American COVID-19 mortality, along with one of my colleagues, Samara Nasa, we came up with the idea of calling it a sentinel event. A sentinel event is a term of art in medicine. When you have an unexpected occurrence that results in death or serious physical or psychological injury, such as a patient falls out of the bed, breaks a hip, you give the transfusion to the wrong person, you leave a surgical tool in the patient after surgery. The joint commissions that licenses hospitals will come and look at your hospital from top to bottom because these sentinel events are signs of extremely poor quality of care. Similarly, the disparate COVID-19 mortality is a sentinel event for the healthcare system in the United States and reflects long-standing, unacceptable racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic cardiovascular inequities. 
a system that has unacceptable care that needs to be caught and mitigated. These are publicly available from the CDC, the disparate rates of hospitalization and death in Black Americans and Hispanic or Latino persons. And looking at vaccination, white in the orange, black in the blue, you see the lower vaccination rates among Black Americans, driven by poor communication, lack of access early on, and mistrust in the healthcare system. You should note, however, that the gap, white versus Black, has narrowed somewhat. And I'm going to show you in Louisiana how we've been able to actually reverse the vaccination gap. So why did you see more COVID-19 hospitalization and death in the African-American community? Well, I don't think it was genetic. It was driven by social determinants. If you can remember the so-called essential worker, people who had to drive the buses and the subways, deliver the food, pick up the garbage, bring your gifts. They exposed themselves. And persons who didn't have a private car used public transportation, mixing and mingling. There was actually a transit operator in Detroit who gave a very heartfelt report of how it was to drive a bus and he later died of COVID-19. If you also can recall, early testing was done in suburban shopping malls. So if you didn't have transportation or you didn't have testing in your area, you did not get early diagnosis. And then unfortunately, the historical distrust of the healthcare system and previous bias led to African-Americans not seeking early testing when the pandemic first hit. National Geographic asked me my opinion in April of 2020, why we saw these variables. And I say there was a mixture of many difficulties faced by African-Americans, which compounds or extends the burden of the coronavirus itself. Discrimination, healthcare access, occupation, education, income, wealth gaps, housing, lost wages, reduced access to services. These are some recent data from the Kaiser Foundation, not directly related to COVID, but I'm gonna show you how it informs the status of COVID-19 and the history of COVID-19 in the United States. The socioeconomic inequities are real. It's not a little bit, it's a lot. In terms of the percentage of non-elderly persons who are below the poverty line, 22% black, 10% white. Those with food insecurity, almost three times more common in the black community. Median family net worth, 189,000 versus 24K. Home ownership, almost half. So there's a clear relationship, and this has been documented. The National Minority Quality Forum has done a wonderful job with a wide range of conditions, but this is related specifically to COVID-19 in Louisiana, my home. The Social Vulnerability Index is a measurement of socioeconomic disadvantaged neighborhoods, multi-generational homes, access to healthcare. And you see in Louisiana, those areas which had the highest degrees of COVID, the dark orange and red, were some of the highest areas of social vulnerability. Early on in the pandemic, I was also concerned that perhaps we were gonna get hit with a twin pandemic. Fortunately, it didn't manifest itself. There are several reasons. One is the uptake of flu vaccine was actually fairly robust 
in late 2019, early 2020. The other is because of the mitigation, the social distancing, washing our hands, wearing masks, it had the unintended good consequence of reducing the burden of influenza. But that being said, Laura has shown you recent data that there really is an uptake gap related to not only COVID-19, but influenza. And these disparities are related to the mistrust in orthodox medicine, widespread fear of dangers and efficacy of vaccines, and a lack of targeted programs to overcome these barriers. The CDC has attempted to address some of these, but overall, for flu vaccination, they're clearly a low levels versus overall, looking at Hispanic Latinx population, non-Hispanic Black persons, and American Indian and Alaska Native persons. This lack of vaccination then is built on a platform of persons who have even more complications of flu itself. So it's, it's really a conundrum. A patient that's a high risk, doesn't get vaccinated, has more hospitalization, and eventually more mortality. And you see that the influenza-associated hospitalization by race ethnicity is clearly disadvantaged in the non-Hispanic Black population. Laura led off with Mardi Gras. Uh, Mardi Gras means Fat Tuesday, so it's Tuesday, but this is carnival season. So the beads are flowing, the parades are bumping. Mardi Gras in New Orleans was February 25th, 2020. It was a wonderful day, bright day. I was out there, my hat back on, and dashiki marching in the street with the brass bands. But what we didn't know, and what the federal government knew, was that in February of 2020, the coronavirus had already entered the United States. And in fact, along with Seattle, New York, the other epicenter, of the coronavirus pandemic was New Orleans. Approximately two weeks after Mardi Gras, February 25th, 2020, we had the first case in one of the highest areas of death and mortality related to COVID-19 was in New Orleans. One source of historical reality that most of you don't know, but you should know, and I accessed these pictures that I'm about to show you on 22222, three days ago. Homeland Security, the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, was here in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. The federal government itself was embedded in our celebration, but no one told us about the possibility of bringing in 300,000 people to party and causing death and disability. Indeed, you can access ice.gov and see this picture now from 2020, showing our police chief marching hand in hand with the federal agents in the bright sun in New Orleans. It had a profound impact on our community. Ellis Marcellus was a part of my extended family Although he was elderly, he functioned at a high level. He played jazz at Snug Harbor every Friday. And other than needing some assistance to get up the steps onto the stage, he played like a gem. He died from COVID-19. On February 25th, one of my childhood friends, Ronald Lewis, was in Treme. I 
don't remember hugging him or dapping him out, but he subsequently developed COVID-19 and died. It was brought to the notice of our governor, John Bell Edwards, that there were these real disparities and high levels of COVID-19 mortality in Louisiana. And he formed a Louisiana COVID-19 Health Effort Task Force, and I was proud to be a member. Subsequently, by October of 21st, Louisiana was one of the first states at this time, the only state, but one of the first states to show that that white-black gap in COVID-19 vaccination had actually been reversed. And Louisiana Black residents were getting COVID-19 vaccinations at a higher rate than the white residents. We were able to significantly close the gap by using trusted messengers. Who are they? Doctors who have practiced in the community for decades, myself, nurses, pharmacists, ministers, community activists, rap musicians from the neighborhoods. And we drove the message that the only way we're gonna get out of this is by vaccination. This is publicly available data from JAMA and shows that some of the hesitancy that was seen, the gap between white and black populations early on in the pandemic actually has now been reversed as the messengers have been able to make a difference. And hopefully we can continue to drive home the benefits of vaccination, not only for COVID-19, but for influenza. These are publicly available data looking at the percentage of the population who received at least one dose. Laura showed you data related to boosters and you can see the white black gap, but you can see it's narrowing. We're doing better. And I think that if we continue to get the message of the benefits of modern medicine, overcome some of the bias and mistrust, which patients honestly feel that we can do better. Here are data published by the Kaiser Foundation, publicly available February of this year in Louisiana. In the white population, the rates of COVID-19 vaccination are low. This is driven by a perverse politics where it's freedom to not be vaccinated among the white population in the South. But in the black population, by the efforts of many people, including members of the governor's health task force, the percentage of black persons who've been vaccinated is actually higher than that of white persons, such that the white-black ratio is less than one, meaning that more percentage of black persons in Louisiana versus white persons have been vaccinated. And the same is true for the Hispanic and the Asian population, mainly Vietnamese, have done a wonderful job of increasing their population who's accepted vaccination. In the United States, the COVID-19 cases are plunging, they're going down. But if you would think clearly, the plunging, the going down is a very, very high peak such that we still have a seven day average, which is quite high. Indeed, if you look at the map of Louisiana, Orleans Parish, which is over to the left-hand side where you have that opening Lake Puncher train, and the surrounding parish of Jefferson is still high in the incidence of COVID-19. And the deaths 
which are a lagging indicator, although they are coming down, are still high. We cannot accept 2,000, 2,000 plus people in the United States dying on a daily basis from any disease, simply because we are tired with dealing with the pandemic. March 1st, 2020 will be Mardi Gras. This is a live shot taken from New Orleans. The lady in the purple is our mayor. This is the president of the Zulu club as they initiate the carnival season. And hopefully, although we're going to go on with carnival, we won't have the same type of terrible surge that we saw in February to March of 2020. In the American Journal of Public Health, I've commented about this, overcoming barriers, and I give a call to my colleagues for what I call cultural humility. It's more than cultural competency. It's not just knowing the lingo and how to talk to patients, but having communication, self-reflection, self-critique, learning from patients, respectful partnerships with the community, and by approaching patients, and the community in an appropriate manner, perhaps we can overcome vaccine hesitancy, not only related to COVID-19, but influenza and other forms of vaccine. And for the clinicians in the audience, no matter how busy you are, take some time to sit down, eye level, culturally appropriate, literacy appropriate communication, using pictures and models to explain to the patients their condition and what can be done to improve their body. The Healthy Heart Community Prevention Project has been doing this for years, led by my wife, Dr. Daphne Ferdinand, RN, PhD. This is before the pandemic, where we would go to local churches and community centers to talk to patients about their health. And at the same time, we partnered with local pharmacies to offer flu vaccine. Since the pandemic, We've partnered with sustainable, healthy communities and the National Minority Quality Forum and formed the New Orleans Diabetes Project. Here, we are measuring A1C and through a series of direct patient education at a local community center in the lower ninth floor, not Tulane, we're able to teach patients about their disease process, medications, diet, exercise, how to talk to their clinicians and how to get appropriate information. The partners are located at the bottom. You see Healthy Heart, Sustainable Healthcare. NORD is the New Orleans Recreation Department. Sankofa is a community program in the Ninth Ward. Baptist Community Health Services, the local charity clinic. Minority Quality Forum. The Lower Ninth Ward Senior Center, where the, the particular program is being held. And Tulane University School of Medicine, the place where I am presently housed. These particular programs are done with appropriate social distancing. We check for the presence of full vaccination and indoor masking. So where are we gonna go forward? Well, what I tell my patients, I wouldn't ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do. I received the vaccine. My extended family has received the vaccine, and we're not going to get out of this pandemic unless we continue to push to have our patients appropriately vaccinated. 
I thank you for this opportunity. I do have an email to which I respond and I'm ready to have a conversation and questions with my colleagues. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Ferdinand. Um, so much food for thought. Um, there's some questions in the boxes. I'm gonna start there. And I have some questions myself. Um, so let me read the, a question that's in the chat box, actually. Does Dr. Ferdinand or his associates have a playbook for their community outreach? It sounds like Indianapolis Eastside FQHCs could use it to promote flu and COVID vaccines. Um, we do to some extent. As I mentioned to you, we've been doing this for decades. It actually started as a pilot program sponsored by National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute and Paul LaFone was director. And uh, Daphne, my wife, actually runs the program. We use some of their materials, the Community Health Workers Guide, and we use some of the practical things that we've learned. It's in the literature, Lessons Learned from Healthy Heart. I published an article in 1995. That's how long we've been doing this, even before that. It's in the Journal of the National Medical Association. Someone can Google it and put it in the chat. And it talks about lessons learned from the Healthy Heart Community Prevention Project. We tend to do in football what good teams do. We, we use regular plays. We don't try to do fancy trick plays. We run the ball, short passes. Every once in a while, we'll go for a loan. But we tend to keep the same pattern. Partner with the community, ask the community what needs to be done, have cultural humility, use persons who are interested in the benefit of the community, not just in getting a research project. So, so one of your enterprising people, you can uh, Google Keith Ferdinand, Healthy Heart Community Prevention Project, Journal National Medical Association. I think it's 1995, it'll probably pop up. We will look for it too and make it available to folks. I'm gonna ask you, sir, to not share your screen anymore so people can actually see you in a bigger face on the screen. Um, so we have a question that says, According to an article published in the American Heart Association Journal, Blacks experienced approximately 20% increase in cardiovascular disease death during the pandemic compared to the non-Hispanic white population who experienced a 2% increase. So what's the connection with COVID here? Can you comment on it and also long COVID? Oh, absolutely. So what happened during the pandemic is that there was no in-person visits for a year, year and a half. And unless the person had a direct relationship with a primary care provider for whom he or she can be evaluated via telehealth, unless they had a valid blood pressure cuff and knew how to use it and had the wherewithal to get in touch with the provider, they kind of fell off the wagon in terms of blood pressure, diabetes, heart failure. This has been shown in national literature. It's been well reported that the rates of hypertension and diabetes control are worsen. And it's been shown that one of the worst predictors of outcomes is not having a primary care home and a direct relationship. And that disparity preceded the pandemic was amplified by the pandemic. What was the second question, Laura? Well, they asked about long COVID, and I guess- Long COVID is real. That. 
Um, the NIH is now doing research on it, but it has been suggested that the effects of the virus are not only respiratory, but also cardiovascular. A study from the VA hospital showed an increase in heart attack, strokes, and overall death a year after among veterans. What we think are happening are two things. Number one, the virus upregulates the immune system so that you get inflammation. Inflammation causes plaque rupture. The other thing is the virus may kind of hide. The symptoms get better, but it's sequestered along the vessel. And there have been some preliminary data that the booster, the third shot, may actually suppress long COVID by killing off some of the effects of COVID-19, which may not have been apparent. Thank you for that. Um, so we have a question about um, whether the kind of better uptake of COVID vaccination among Blacks in Louisiana versus whites, Black persons versus white persons, has that also been linked to um, lower COVID infection and death rates by race among people of color, Blacks in particular, Black people? The death rates uh, are still disparate because the death rates are not just vaccination uptake, although that's a strong predictor. It's also comorbid conditions. So you have a patient who has uh, more diabetes, more hypertension, more heart failure, more chronic kidney disease. They're going to get sicker and still die. So uh, I cannot say with great assurance that we've been able to revert, reverse the disparity in the death rate. But I would think it's narrowed substantially. And the data in terms of vaccine uptake suggests that even those high-risk patients are going to have less hospitalization and death. Um, my, my fear is that we as human beings don't want to accept the reality of what this pandemic is. And we want to believe it's over because the numbers are, quote, down. But if you look at those curves, they're still high. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the history of humankind, we talk about the colonials coming and bringing the gun and killing people of color around the world. Well, that's true. But what also happened, and this is well reported, the Pacific Islanders, Central Mexico, is many of those populations were decimated when exposed to viruses in which they had no immunity. So it is not a fairy tale. It is not unexpected that if a new virus is introduced into a population without immunity, it can cause terrible death and disability. So there's a question here, and I'm going to add on to it because it was a question that I had. <clears throat> First, uh, one of many uh, kudos given to you by people who are listening in. How do you propose that state leaders from the governor to others in executive roles be held accountable for addressing health disparities and inequities now and beyond? And, and I guess that's my question. So many of the folks I work with are very concerned that while it's um, cachet now to talk about health e equity and do some things, that they fear that's gonna go away pretty darn soon. How do we make this stick? I fear that also. One of the reasons I continue to practice is to serve my community. Tulane is the second largest employer in New Orleans. And many of the people who work here are from the community and the patients are from the community. What I think we have to do is look at some of the structure of the society, support those politicians, those health leaders 
who believe in universal health care, not having insurance or not having adequate insurance, underinsurance is one of the markers of increased death. These data have been done. They have looked at counties that did not expand Medicaid and did not have navigators for the Affordable Care Act. They have higher rates of death. There are even analyses related to COVID-19. Those counties, many of them ostensibly white, probably voting more Republican, who for distorted pseudo-political reasons reject vaccines have higher death rates. So we need to work to support those local and state politicians who believe in universal health care, believe that health is the right, and who are willing to do the good work. Politicians who believe that can make sure that legislation and finances are put into the healthcare system to make it equitable. On the community level, we should continue to partner. And I heard you mention that you work with the churches, barbershops, the, salon, the salons, the clubs, the social and pleasure clubs, to help them educate their members about the importance of modern medicine. Medicine has come a long way. We do wonderful things with diabetes, prevent blindness, chronic kidney disease, heart failure. We do wonderful things with hypertension to control the risk for heart attack, strokes, and end-stage renal disease. But if the medicines are not taken, if the person doesn't have access, they won't have the benefits of modern medicine. You know, I, I appreciate what you're saying, and I too worry about the health equity may, may go out of vogue. I worry about providing enough support to the churches who are doing the good work of, you know, educating their congregants and, you know, connecting up the services. Um, they don't really have regular streams of funding to do that work. So I think there's some risk that we may go backwards. I want to, before I ask you to look into the crystal ball about where we're going with COVID and the need for additional vaccines, um, I was concerned, even though it was a light flu season this year again, that we're losing ground, that people are kind of moving away from flu vaccination. And I wonder if you worry about that and what we should be doing in the next year to make sure, you know, everyone is protected, including and especially people of color. I had cardiac clinic today, patients with peripheral arterial disease, heart failure, hypertension, status post-intervention. And part of my discussion with them is not just their blood pressure medicine, not even just their diabetes and cholesterol, but have you gotten your vaccine? Have you gotten your COVID-19? Did you get a booster? Can I see your card? Did you get the flu? It's kind of late in the season, but you know you're very high risk and the flu can hang around all the way till May, so you still have time. I make that part of my conversation. I think we should drive our clinicians, whether it be physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, pharmacists, community health workers, to understand the benefits of vaccination and offer it to our patients. This is one of the best things we can do for healthcare. If you remember the life expectancy data, which is publicly available, go to the CDC and look it up for yourself. The white black mortality gap has been persistent for decades. And it's not driven by drive-by shooting. It's not driven by drugs. Black kids use drugs no more than white kids. White kids use more. Black kids are incarcerated more. And the ravages of the war on crime have been felt by the black community more. But that's not why we have the white-black death gap. The white-black death gap is driven by cardiometabolic and cardiovascular disease. And including 
vaccination, not being vaccinated to prevent the worsening of both of those conditions. Remember cultural humility. I don't beat up on patients. I don't blame patients for mistrust. I don't like the healthcare system myself, <laughs> but you have to kind of overcome that barrier. And, and if they believe that you are a trusted messenger, which I hope I am, then they will exceed it. Uh, the American Journal of Public Health, when I wrote that editorial, they also did a, a verbal uh, interview and it was on their website. And they were mentioning how black people weren't getting vaccinated and how terrible it was. And I said, yeah. And then I mentioned some of the things that happened, the segregation in the healthcare system, the fact that the white physicians were the apologists for slavery. They actually had long theses explaining how people of African descent were less than human and why it was okay to enslave them. Yes, doctors wrote those type of papers. I then go on to suggest that if you get the right information and you use trusted messengers, black people don't wanna die. And indeed, that's why you're seeing that JAMA paper and some of the hesitancy being overcome. And in Louisiana, where we had a powerful health equity task force that the governor led, that we were able to reverse some of those findings. Well, thank you. That is very wise. Now, okay, get the crystal ball out. Will there be a need for another COVID booster? And does the current vaccines lose their effectiveness over time? So the present data suggests that the third shot appears to be successful long-term. And I'll tell you why. When you give a vaccination, you have an antibody response, which peaks, it goes up after about two weeks. It's not immediate, and you can't get the shot, and then take off your mask and go sit in the ballroom. But after about two to three weeks, the antibodies go up. Then over the subsequent three to four months, the antibodies start to go down. But the reason we think that they still are protective long-term, even when the antibodies start to go down, is because of what's called the T cells and the B cells. These are types of white blood cells that are sequestered in the bone marrow. And they kind of memorize what it's like to have the spike protein. And they will come out and fight an infection four, five, six months later. The CDC in its last recommendations don't suggest the fourth booster other than persons who are severely immunocompromised, people on high dose steroids, cancer survivors, people who are getting immunosuppressive drugs. I have not gotten the fourth booster. My family, I don't recommend the fourth booster. If we need a four shot, get it. Millions and millions and millions of people have gotten these vaccines and done well. What I tell my community, and what I tell anyone who's listening now, we are spoiled in America. We take our death and dying, we put them in these shiny, bright buildings made out of glass and steel called hospitals. We often don't visit them. In COVID-19, you can't visit them. And when they die, we put them in these pretty boxes. We often dress them up in the finest of clothes and then we put them into a box and drop them into a hole. So we don't see the death that you see in Brazil where they had open ditches with bodies being pushed in by small bulldozers or in India where you had burning bodies in open fields and the Ganges with bodies floating. Look it up for yourself. If you don't remember those images, you should see them because that's what COVID-19 mortality looks like. What do I think? I think we're gonna have a good Mardi Gras. I don't know if I'm gonna go out. 
I think it's a grand experiment. I won't be surprised if we have a peak, but because we have higher rates of vaccination, perhaps we won't see the same degrees of death and disability. People who are vaccinated, the virus still can enter your body. You get a cold-like symptom, you may get some sore throat, even some mild fatigue, shortness of breath, but you won't get the severe respiratory damage, the need for ventilation and death. So the vaccines work. They're not magic. They're simple human beings with simple tools, but they work. That's great. Um, there's two more questions I see in here. One is from our good colleague, Shirley Giraud, and, and she really wanted to know, um, do you have model legislation or kind of a information about how your health equity task force was put together and what they did that can be shared around with other um, legislative bodies? There is a report, a formal report, again, with the magic of Google, Louisiana Health Equity COVID-19 Task Force. And the the uh, report is there. I saw it just this week when I was preparing these talks. All right, I'll, I'll try to help, surely help you find that, okay? Um, I think there is another kind of a crystal ball question. Okay, do you see the COVID vaccine becoming an annual vaccine like the flu vaccine? We don't know. Perhaps so. If it is, do it. One thing about the flu virus is that it has many more moving parts and it tends to shift and change much more even than COVID-19. Now, it's not as bad because even when it shifts and changes, we have some immunity because either we've been vaccinated or exposed at some time in the past. So it doesn't kill at the same rate, but it can kill 30, 40,000 people a year. And as I mentioned in my talk, it's somewhat of a shame that we have gotten used to two to two and a half thousand people dying every day. We're gonna cross a million sometime in the next month or so. It's gonna be a big news story, but it's not news, it's math. Yeah, I know. How is it that 2,000 people dying a day is Okay. Not even front page news. Um, so what do you think? This is not my question. What do you think about not wearing masks at this point? Um, I think some of that is frankly due to political pressure and it's really not political. It's, it's the forces of Americans who always want to wish for a better day and want to not believe what's happening is really happening. I think if you're high risk, that includes hypertension, diabetes, over 65, immunocompromised, cancer survivor, severe obesity, wear a dog on mass, it ain't that bad. People in the East, Japan, China, Southeast Asia, they wear masks every flu season. You go on the subways, you go on the trains, you walk down the street, everybody's got a mask on, it ain't that big a deal. Americans act like sparrow children sometimes, that the worst thing we have to do is wear a mask. Uh, I will continue to wear my mask. In the hospital, it, there is a mask mandate. New Orleans has an indoor mask mandate, which they're probably going to drop soon. I'm still going to wear my mask when I go to the grocery store or the pharmacy, and I do wear the mask. The only reason I don't have it on at work right now is because I'm inside my office with the door closed. When I leave, I have a mask. I'll pick it up and put it on. You know, I've been so concerned with your... You know, I just have great feeling for those who have young children who cannot be vaccinated yet. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, how to best maneuver that in the families with young under five. 
I think children are going to be all right. One of the best things you can do for children is just protect them from environments where they will be exposed. Don't take them to the local uh, crowded restaurant if they're not vaccinated. Children do get sick. About uh, 900 plus have died and they continue to die and they are hospitalized even more now than earlier on in the pandemic. But clearly it's not at the same rate as the older persons, the persons with diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, chronic kidney disease, and severe obesity. So just kind of protect your children. One of the reasons we didn't see a lot of childhood coronavirus early on is because they were protected. They were at home. And as we opened up, no mystery, the virus is looking for a host. And it found it in young people. But, but fortunately, we're doing better. So what do you, as a last question or in any final thoughts you have, um, so how are we gonna bring that 20% difference gap in cardiovascular disease death between black persons and white? How are we gonna attack that? How are we gonna make that go away? First of all, it's been present for centuries. And if you look at the short history I gave you in New Orleans, some of the maltreatment, mistreatment, bad treatment, has been persistent for centuries. And the Supreme Court and the legislative leaders not only have not helped, but many times have been a step with backwards. So I do not believe we're gonna close the white-black mortality gap anytime soon. I think in certain areas where you have universal healthcare, expanded Medicaid, primary care homes, where you have educated, informed citizens, I don't mean intelligent, Educated means they, they know what time it is and they take care of themselves. They're able to narrow some of the gaps, but overall statistics are gonna be bad for a long time. The younger members of our society are gonna to have to step forth and say, we don't wanna have a society like this anymore. Some of the old heads are kind of buried into their previous ways of doing things. And they have been recently invigorated as our society has started to even more embrace ignorance and backwards. I guess that's a semi-positive note that you en ended on there. Huh? Well, you know, tell no lies, claim no easy victories. Uh, I work hard, my wife works hard, you work hard to try to make a difference. But we're not gonna turn this thing around in one year, two years. It's gonna be a long struggle. Well, I, I, you know, it's always such a deep honor and pleasure to be part of a, a meeting with you and hear you talk about your amazing work. Um, Thank you so much, Dr. Ferdinand. We really, really appreciate and honor all your work. It's my pleasure. Les la bon temps roulée. <laughs> and remember, it's Ash Wednesday, the day after. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Thank you for attending. <laughs>